Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm Laura Palmer. And this is Island Crime, Season 3, Missing Michael, the man in the brown van. It's early on in my research when I first learn about a lead I can't stop thinking about to this day. A credible source tells me that just over a year before Michael Dunahy vanishes, there is an alleged attempted abduction of a three-year-old boy at virtually the exact same location. The first incident happens at the intersection of Kings Road and Dowler Place in Victoria. Michael Dunahy vanishes on the same block. This reported attempt abduction has never been made public before. It didn't make the news back then and has never been shared by the police in connection with the Dunahy investigation. Here's what I've been able to learn about the alleged incident. In September 1989, a man in a brown van is observed trying to lure a three-year-old boy into his van. His enticement, McDonald's toys. A woman named Bev Morrison observes what is happening. She steps in. She exchanges words with the man. He's angry and tells her to mind her own business. The police are called. An officer assigned to traffic arrives. Before he gets there, the man flees. He is GOA, gone on arrival. There's no sign of the brown van. The officer carries on with his duties and no further work is done on the file at the time. But the woman has made note of the brown van's license plate number. 911, what's your emergency? Dispatch records this information. The man's name, the name of the child, and the child's mother, as well as Bev Morrison, the witness who intervened, are all on file. When I first hear this story, my heart stops. Two pieces of information gleaned from leading experts in this area immediately come to mind. Stranger abductions of children are rare. How likely would it be that two different men attempted to abduct a little boy at the same spot within about a year? And, before a successful abduction, there will almost always be failed abduction attempts. I've been told it's rare that offenders are 100% successful. There will usually be some examples or instances where the offender tried to get someone into their vehicle and was unsuccessful. So, I continue my work on Missing Michael, I publish the 10 episodes I plan to produce, but I can't get this lead out of my mind. My original source is solid, but unwilling to go on the record with this information. So my work on Missing Michael continues after the original episodes drop. I'm determined to learn as much as I can about this tip. I conduct dozens of interviews. 
I knock on doors, make cold calls. I try to peel back the layers. There is likely only a handful of people with information about this guy. This episode is primarily aimed at them. I'm not naming this individual, or I should say, individuals. It's possible the man's partner knows something. I believe she has information about her spouse that could prove helpful. This pair, who I will refer to as Brown Van Guy and his partner, have never been charged. I'm not certain they're connected to Michael's case, but I view this as the most promising lead I've encountered. As one source told me, I've now joined a small fraternity of people who believe this pair are worth another look. Just prior to publishing, the brown van man died. He was elderly, and I'm told in poor health. But his spouse is still alive. She, too, grows older. And she's also unwell. And so the window of opportunity to learn whether they can be excluded is closing. I'm hoping that by putting this story out there, even without naming them, it will spark someone to come forward with information. I believe this lead has the potential to push the Michael Dunahee investigation forward, and I see a significant public interest in doing so. The September 1989 attempted abduction incident involves a brown van. Now, the brown van tip in the Dunahee case is one of the most significant and controversial pieces of information in the investigation. Current investigators don't seem to put much stock in the brown van tip. They believe the child witness who first came forward with the brown van description isn't credible. They now believe that in an effort to be helpful, she provided the information that may have been untrue. But the child is not the only one to observe a brown van that day. There is also Norma, the realtor who spots a van in the alley near the school. You heard my interview with her earlier in this series. The van she describes is similar to the van involved in the attempt abduction. There's also the neighbor near the school who observes a van he clearly recalls because he thinks it belongs to a friend who owns a similar vehicle. But even if you take away the brown van we are left with an alleged attempt abduction of a small boy close to Michael's age in virtually the same spot. In this episode, I'll walk you through some of the steps I've taken to confirm aspects of the brown van man's life and possible connection to Michael Dunahee's disappearance. The first thing I do is work to confirm my original tip about the alleged attempted abduction with the Victoria Police. At first, I'm told my information is too vague. Without an exact date or a name, it will be impossible to surface this file should it exist. I'm reminded that reports back then would have been on paper and that trying to search with the barest of information will be impossible. I go back to my source and press them for more detail. They can't. They won't. In the meantime, I work with what I've got. 
I don't have a name, but I have a description of a home and the area where the couple once lived. I search maps, comb through old phone book listings with the help of the Victoria Archives. Eventually, I land on a name, a name of the woman who owned the home back then. She's the partner of the man in the brown van in the alleged attempted abduction in 1989. Next, I find her online. It's not hard. Her name is somewhat unusual, and at this point, she hasn't locked down her social media settings. I send a picture of the woman and her partner to my source. Bingo. It's confirmed I've identified the couple. I stare at their picture for a long time. Could this average older couple, sitting in a very ordinary-looking restaurant, be responsible for Michael Dunahy's abduction? In the picture, the man is gray-haired with a beard, smiling. At the time the picture is taken, he looks to be in his 80s. She looks younger than he, perhaps in her 70s, dark-haired, tired-looking, serious. I send her a query with the following message. This may come a little out of the blue, so apologies for the social media intrusion. I'm a journalist working on a story about a cold case. Your name came up as someone who may have information. If you're open to speaking with me, please let me know a date and time that would suit you. All the best, Laura. Now, it's just before Christmas 2021 when I send this message. I get no response. It's possible she doesn't see my message. For a time, I observe her behavior online. She is frequently commenting on posts by friends and family members. She seems active and engaged in her online life. And yet, she never gets back to me. So I begin calling around the neighborhood where the couple once lived. I'm discreet. I'm simply a reporter trying to track down information on a story. These days, not everyone has a landline, and the few neighbors I reach don't recall the couple. So I decide to drive down the island and knock on some doors. In 700 meters, keep right to Highway 19A South. The home where the suspect and his partner once lived is in a quiet suburban neighborhood. At this point, I only know the woman's name, but I begin talking to residents, hoping that someone will recall the pair, as they did live in the area for some time. The home they once occupied is a modest brown bungalow built in the 1950s. Prices have skyrocketed here in recent years. Today, this humble house would likely sell for a million dollars. This neighborhood is changing. Young families are moving in. And I understand that they were old. Yes. Really old. Yeah, I think, I think he would be maybe in his 90s. Yes, you heard correctly. I believe the brown van man is about 90 at the time I'm first trying to find him. His partner likely in her 80s. There's an upscale market nearby their former home. But back when they lived here, it would have been a more working-class place. Eventually, I hit pay dirt. A neighbor tells me she knows the couple I'm looking for. She believes they moved up island. 
she agrees to forward my contact information to their attention. Another resident tells me the approximate part of the island she believes the couple have moved to. A fellow stops to say he too can recall the couple. They talk about the man having a strong accent, but there is no agreement on his heritage. Someone thinks Greek. Another suggests perhaps Eastern European. But I've got enough information that I think I can find them. First, I want to know more about the man in the brown van. To date, the Victoria Police Department will not talk to me about this man or his partner. He has never been publicly identified in connection with Michael's case. With other specific subjects, they have been willing to tell me if they have been ruled out or not. But that's not true in this case. I schedule a phone meeting with the Victoria Police. If there's an active investigation into this pair now, I don't want to get in the middle of it. I also don't want to waste my time if the police have been able to exclude them. But the conversation fails to illuminate on either of these considerations. I let them know I'm trying to get a sit-down interview with the couple. My original source has never agreed to talk to me about the brown van guy on the record. But I now have a second possible source. And it's a very solid second source. I'm always cautious about saying anything, especially if there's a long-term, which I don't know this, uh, if there's an investigation of where it's at right now. When I used to be with organized crime, um, we would do things uh, like before we ran wire surveillance, we would do a stimulation somehow and we'd get conversation flowing so we could pick it up over uh, wiretapping. So I would hate for us to do anything that would, you know, uh, be a detriment to an investigation if it was at that certain point. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I get you. Okay, I'm sorry. Your first name again was? Yeah, my name is Laura Palmer. This source wants to check me out. He makes some calls. Eventually, he agrees to meet. But he wants this first conversation to be in person. I get the sense I'm being tested. They want to know I'm trustworthy. So I drive down the island once again to meet face-to-face with my second source. We're getting together at his current place of business in a light industrial area outside of Victoria. He is a confident, friendly, middle-aged man, and he's a talker. I don't give a shit if I get in trouble for it. Enough time's gone on. Everybody's had enough opportunity to do something and they haven't. We chat for some time about his family, his business... And finally, once we've established something of a bedrock of trust, I begin to ask about the brown van man. I've been very successful in my, for my own needs. I've been, I, when I feel very successful in life. And uh, this is one of the things that I don't want to go to my grave wishing when I was in a position, I was in the past, I didn't have the ability to drive that invest. It wasn't my investigation. It wasn't my department's investigation. But now I kind of, the terms with I'm a bit independent now and if they want to come after me they'll come after me I think I just rely on all the I'm doing this in good faith my source as you've likely already gathered 
is a retired police officer. I see the job um, in law enforcement is, is our obligation to prove somebody's innocent. And if you can't prove them innocent, then you're on the right track to the person who's guilty. At the end of our first in-person meeting, he agrees to continue to talk to me about why, to this day, he believes the pair could be involved in Michael Dennehy's disappearance. I've never been satisfied he's been proven innocent. And on a balance and scale, my experience tells me there's many more things, not a smoking gun, but there are many things that are too coincidental, don't make sense, and kind of defy logic. Meet retired Saanich police officer Frank Wright. I can't say I'm confident he, he did it, but I'm less confident that he didn't do it. Frank was a staff sergeant when he retired from the Saanich force. But like some of the retired Victoria police officers I met earlier on, Frank retires young. He starts a new business and has been very successful. But still, even now, the man in the brown van remains something of a sore point. I begin by asking him to describe how he first met the man in the brown van. I was on routine patrol up at the corner of Prospect Lake Road and Mun Lake Road. At that corner was a brown Westphalia van camper van parked off to the side of the road. Not a lot of clearance from where that van was parked. It was parked on the curb, being a taller vehicle. It was very hard to see around, so I kind of thought, you know, this isn't really a good spot to park. It's not really safe. And on top of that, it was like, you know, I'd been patrolling out there for months and months and months. I'd never seen anybody parked there. So I either stolen vehicle, parked unsafely, or, um, you know, it's, it's broken down. So when I went to check the car to see if, you know, the ignition had been punched or something like that, in the bushes between the, the van and the fence, I saw some, like a flash of pink. So I walked over to it and it turned out it was this gentleman lying down on the ground and he jumped up quickly and I asked him what he was doing. He said he was sunbathing. This is where he comes to sunbathe. But over the fence, because it was just a rail fence, like in the distance, probably uh, four or 500 feet away, were, you know, little girls of various ages riding horses. And I said, look, if we can see them, they can see you. Get your clothes on and get out of here. And he did. He said, I work for Trudy, and I just come up here on my lunch breaks to sunbathe. I do that. I'm European. This is what I do. So he's very, you know, able to speak English and, and very communicative, and I understood everything he said, but he did comply, and he left. I don't think I'll ever forget sitting across the desk from this guy as he first tells me this strange story of meeting the suspect, the brown van man, lying naked in the forest. And Frank doesn't have to wait long before his path once again crosses with our guy. A couple months later, on a night shift, we got a phone call. And she had said she felt someone was on her property and said she felt someone was prowling at her house at night. You know, things had been moved in the barn and the stalls. Horses were put back in their long stalls. Something was going on. We felt that it was probably a very viable the fence going on. So we all drove out there, 
in the same spot, parked at the same place at the side of the road on Prospect Lake and, and Munns Road was van. So we called our dog in, our dog handler, and he searched the property but couldn't find anything because there are so many conflicting smells on a farm. The dog just couldn't pick anything up. During this time while we were responding, uh, Ms. Madsen was updating her dispatcher saying she felt someone was there because they always leave a clock radio playing music in the barn at night for the horses and that the lights are all off. When she got home from going out for dinner with a friend, she found that the music was off and the lights were on and she knows that they weren't left that way. So that caused her to believe someone stole on the property. So after I, I saw the man, I said, I know this guy, I dealt with him a couple months ago. Why don't you get your recruit to take my car, you take your car, go down the road a mile out of sight. Because if he's laying down low and he's hiding, he's going to come back to his car. I stayed there with the car hidden in the bushes. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget this. I even put my hat on, which is something we rarely did in those days. And I'll, I'm hunkered in the bush. And then lo and behold, near the driveway that led to the main house, quite a distance from the van, I hear, you know, some rustling and some banging or something, like hitting a fence. And lo and behold, he's come out of the woods by the driveway. He's on Prospect Lake Road, under the streetlight, wearing overalls and, and rubber boots. And he's walking up the hill towards his van. When he got close, and we weren't in the direct streetlight, but when he got close, I stood up, you know, said, Sanich, police, you're under arrest for trespass at night. And the fight was on. I, he totally cold cocked me, took a punch. We were wrestling on the pavement and he's an older fella, but he was wiry. And all I could think of was <clears throat> I need to roll him off the road onto the shoulder of the road in front of the van so that if a car does come around the corner, it's not going to kill us. So we did a, we were wrestling and on the ground fighting and rolled him and where we needed to go. And then I got on top of him and I handcuffed him. Got out the radio and put him in the back of the police car and towed his car into the police department and drove him to the police department. And all during this time, he was pretending he didn't understand English. Of course, having dealt with him and he didn't recognize me, I knew that he could. So we brought him in. I seized his clothes, hung them to dry because it was, they were, it, they were wet because it was, he was in the high tall grass and uh, did some background checking on him. So I looked on our indices in those days, it was called search. Search was our local indices. So it had Victoria Sanich, Oak Bay and Esquimalt all shared, Ed Central Sanich all shared this in-house repository. So when I looked under his name, I ran him, I found that he had been a person of interest or as a registered owner of the Westphalia man at Blanchard Elementary School in the driveway behind Bars Grings, where a lady 
named Beverly. I saw him talking to a little boy, trying to, to get the little boy to come into the van. He had McDonald's Happy Meal toys to show him. She interjected and said, you're not, you know, go away. And he had an altercation with her, verbal one, just saying, basically, you fuck off. And then he got in his van and left. The file, the suspicious person file, was went, actually went to a traffic officer who searched the area, didn't find the van. I've now got stronger suspicion and reasonable grounds to think he's a very strange individual that has a cross, almost like a cross discipline. But one of the things that struck me during the, the King's Road file, when the kind of joint investigative team flew down a Quantico FBI, a Sanitary the investigator, had come back and he did a report, just basically a synopsis of what the FBI said that about the suspect and, and, and what we should be looking for. And I say we, I mean the police. And one of those points was he will be on police indices having tried this before. So that just for me set, you know, the hair in the back of my neck went up and I said, we've got to do something now. So I went up to my staff sergeant, it's probably three o'clock in the morning. And I said, look, and I laid it out to him. This is my suspicions and thoughts. We need to call in the detectives tonight while we have him in custody. Which was really unusual because the staff sergeant, no one likes phoning detective sergeants at home at three o'clock in the morning for a guy that was a trespass at night file. You wouldn't do that ever, ever in a million years. And I remember them coming in and they had called his common law white to come in and be interviewed. Literally, I was present, literally when she came in, Gordy Tregear, it was like, where's the Polaroid? And he said, well, it's in my car. And so he, he grabs a Polaroid and he takes pictures of her face on sideways. And he said, that matches the drawing that a realtor, and he met Norma, had drawn under hypnosis for a lady that she saw. And she was a, a tipster on the Dunhee file a couple of years previously. But he said, that matches, but it's spooky. The Gordy Tregear Frank is referring to retired as a detective sergeant in 1996. Unfortunately, he passed away just a few years ago, so I'm unable to speak with him about this incident. The Norma Frank is referring to here is the realtor I interviewed earlier in Missing Michael. She's the retired realtor who believes she witnessed Michael's abduction all those years ago. In my research, I've heard varying reports as to what exactly the brown van guy was alleged to have been doing at night with the horses. One of those I speak with tells me he was encouraging the horses to mate while he observed. I request access to the Saanich Police Department records on this incident. The response back from their Information and Privacy Commissioner acknowledges that there are files concerning disturbing activity at a Saanich stable, but tells me they are unable to provide me with any information. Now, the allegations out at the stables are troubling, but it is the Brown Van Guy's involvement with the possible attempt abduction of the boy in the spot where Michael disappears that really makes him stand out for me. I asked Frank what more he can recall about the report of the September 1989 attempt abduction that preceded Michael Dunahy's disappearance in the spring of 1991. 
the report is the reached, uh, you know, tent of the area. The uh, van, a suspicious van, was gone at the time. Filling in space and justifying that I took this case and I did do something on it, now it's concluded. There was no more follow-up at the registered owner's house for the van. And in order to be expedient to get back on the road or go on to something else, some things that happen don't really get articulated as well as they should in the report because nobody likes writing reports, but everybody likes going lights and sirens to an emergency. He describes what the process for filing the report would have looked like back then. You know, the subject van was gone on arrival. There was no crime in progress. My return to my traffic duties. This file is being referred to sex crimes for follow-up, right? Because maybe this guy's a suspect in four other cases that the traffic division doesn't know about. That's what normally should happen. Or it's going to the detectives for follow-up. But it's clear by the notes that file never went anywhere. No work was done other than the information that the dispatch taker put in. I learn that Brown Van Man is also on a so-called bad trick list. Local prostitutes reportedly know him and describe his odd behaviors. And he is the focus of allegations involving the abuse of other children. One involves a relative, the other a neighbor. In the interest of protecting the victims in these cases, I won't be including the details of the incidents out of concern it could lead to them being identified. In the case involving a relative, once again, a witness intervenes when a young person's shouts are heard coming from the brown van. When the witness tries to assist, the man emerges with a rifle, and another witness steps in to calm things down. I'm told this, too, is reported to police. The other incident only comes to light years later, when a neighbor comes forward to say they, too, were a child victim of the brown van man. They're making the report as part of their healing process, but they don't want to proceed with charges. Now, you'll recall from earlier episodes of Missing Michael that in the months and years after Michael's abduction, the whole island, the country, is frantically searching for Michael. And Frank, too, wonders if perhaps this strange man he has encountered could be responsible for Michael's abduction. So he and a few other fellow officers organize a search of their own. We were talking about it one day at our muster of the morning parade, and it was bugging us that nothing had been done. And I had suggested to our staff sergeant, look, get Victoria to call out and search and rescue. They practice all the time. They have at least one month they practice. Or we can call out search and rescue and just say, you know what? We want you to look in this area mm-hmm. as part of your practice. You run up and you hide your dummy or hide your thing that you you want your search and rescue people to do the grid pattern on and practice your communication skills, radio skills, all sort of thing, location, compass, uh, GPS. And they're really, uh, this particular staff sergeant wasn't too interested in it. He was more, look, you know, we're probably going to get 80 calls for service today and, uh, you know, we need to be ready for them, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so what we did is it, on day shift, you would normally go out about 7 o'clock in the morning. It's still pretty quiet. And some of the guys would get together and really go for a quick breakfast together. Talk about the day, talk about files, do whatever you want. More of a social thing. For the rest of the day, you may never see another policeman because you're jumping from fire to fire to fire to fire. But this morning, we all said, okay, let's skip breakfast. And we went out and we walked up the side 
of the mound and where would park. Frank and his fellow officers are aware of the FBI profile that has been made of Michael's abductors. He thinks the brown van man fits. And with this in mind, he searches the area near where the brown van man once worked. And I remember having my baton and moving Salal, lifting things up, looking. You know, you don't really know what you're looking for. And just looking. And I lifted up this one Salal bush and I saw a small rib cage and hair and bones. And the only time in my life where I was literally speechless because I went to call the other guys. Hey, you know, I didn't think about it. Was like, and when I looked more closely, it was in deer carcass. Probably like a little fawn or something like that. Very clearly, the skull was not a human skull. You know, that area probably could have done with a a good grid search because, as I explained to you on the FBI parole filing, you know, the the victim would be taken five kilometers from the induction site, wooded area. Obviously, he's very knowledgeable of the area, and uh, that's where you know you'll find the body. Years pass. All of this lands the brown van guy under scrutiny when the file comes under review. I had kept a binder with all the tidbits that came across because, you know, if, if he was certainly a person of interest to me, I just felt that something someday is going to come up with him. And so I photocopied everything, gave it to him. And I know that right after that, um, he had the Victoria Strike Force. And they're a, a plainclothes surveillance team, the project team. Just do some lifestyles on him. Try to get some DNA cast off. The sergeant of Strike Force told me later that they followed him and he went to the London Drugs at Quadrant Mackenzie. And he said the way he was talking and looking and dealing with the, you know, the private school girls from St. Margaret's, he said, I, I got on the air and said, you know, there's a code in surveillance called crime time. That means it's going down now. He said, do not let this guy out of our sight with any of these kids. He said, I just felt, you know, that he's a weird, weird duck. It's Frank's understanding that the brown van guy is taken so seriously during this review that the brown van itself is located. He found it somewhere in Ontario, and Victoria bought it, brought it back, and had the RCMP crime lab, you know, pulled all over it, and again, they came of it, of the, the search. You know, I think they actually tore the friggin' thing apart. Like, it was junk afterwards. The stuff I sent off to the crime lab that had his overalls and the gun boots mm-hmm. in it, uh, crime lab lost. It's like the only thing I've ever heard lost by the crime lab. So the man in the brown van is followed. He is under surveillance. Frank believes the Victoria police purchased the brown van, and a detail that Victoria police have not confirmed to me, that they are still in possession of the van to this day. But despite these efforts, police are unable to ever get enough confirmation to charge him with the crime. But you feel uh, strongly enough about him that you make this file uh, a binder. 
that you hang on to throughout your career. Is that right? Yes. And do you do that with anybody else? No. This whole thing, and, and I know you're coming at it from the from the Dunahee perspective, and you know, I am totally in step with that. For me, while that may be the most pressing and the most urgent, it's more about him. He may be responsible for many things we've never even heard about yet. Just feel that he has touched so many investigations that that's beyond coincidence. And what of the brown van man's partner? You would have had to do something with or know that did something really friggin' bad and you could be held accountable for it as well. Okay. I remember in, in Norma's hypnotized sketches, she shows a woman dragging a boy away from a park. That sketch is so detailed because she's a spit. It's almost like Norma was looking at a picture and drawing her. I asked Frank what he makes of any possible role she may have played in her partner's alleged crimes. It's almost like I can't afford for him to be out of my life or him to get arrested or anything like that because I'd go down too. Or they've got such a weird codependent relationship right. that maybe she doesn't even realize what she's doing. Before I head for home, I asked Frank to take me out to the site where he first encountered Brown Van Guy. Okay, so how are we your way? Good. We're good on the right. And where they later fought in the darkness. We're coming up now to where uh, the van was parked. That's all a big hill goes all the way up to uh, in Francis King Park. So, just past this fence. So that's her property there. It's a beautiful, gentle spot. It's horse country, with stands of giant old fir trees. Here's the curve I was telling you about where the van was parked. It was kind of blocking it right here. So the van was parked on this side of the road or over right here. here? Okay. Right here. Actually, <clears throat> it was closer to that pole. And you are literally in the middle of nowhere. <clears throat> Let's We on a Saturday and a Sunday, walked all up there, thinking that wooded area, five kilometers from the Americans, five miles from the abduction site, familiar with, um, you know, the perpetrator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We thought it's not going to be off a trail people walk. It's going to be somewhere and it's not going to be hugely far in. As I listened to Frank recall what happened here, the search for Michael in this spot, which resembles where the FBI profile suggested Michael could be found. I wonder if this could be Michael's final resting place. Somebody knows something that's insignificant to them, it's gonna be crucial to the investigation. Somebody somewhere that you don't even know and the police don't even know exists. Maybe the turning point, maybe the pivotal point where someone will speak. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Missing Michael, the Brown Van Man, Part 1. As always, I'll leave you with a word from one of Michael's heroes.
Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.